going to pick up the story uh, in verse 29, where Jesus is speaking to the disciples. So follow along. Immediately after the distress of those days, this is the future, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, John. Um, this week I was reading about the seven wonders of the ancient world. Here are some pictures on the screen that you can just see three of them. Let me tell you about three of them. Uh, you can see on the screen here the Great Pyramids. The Great Pyramid at Giza in uh, Egypt. It was for 4,000 years the tallest man-made structure in the world. For 4,000 years, that's quite a record. Uh, you can see also top right-hand corner a picture of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, built by Nebuchadnezzar II, 23 metres tall. That's roughly four houses in height. Uh, these vast structures and terraces of greenery and beauty. Then you can see the main picture on the left-hand side of your screen, the statue of Zeus seated on his throne in Greece. It was built in the fifth century. It stood 12 meters tall, vast structure. The uh, skin was made from ivory. The robes were made from hammered gold. They're just three of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These vast constructions made by human hands, by men and women, 
for the purpose of legacy, for the purpose of worship, most of which have now been lost to time. In Matthew 24, we meet another marvel of the ancient world, a wonder of the ancient world. In Matthew 24 is the temple in Jerusalem. It's the temple in Jerusalem is the centerpiece of political and uh, ethnic pride, if you are a Jewish person. It was vast in its construction. It was uh, incredibly intricate and beautiful. Just imagine coming up to Jerusalem if you were just used to a single story dwelling. <clears throat> it was huge and would have been very, very impressive. It's the centerpiece for the beginning of the discussion that we find in Matthew chapter 24. Now, Matthew 24 is one of the most complex chapters in the whole gospel. It can appear confusing as uh, we study it carefully. It's not so much like a simple sentence in a book where you garner the meaning from reading from one side of the sentence to the other. It's far more like a piece of music, like we thought about in the book of Revelation. There are different layers of meaning, just like there are different notes uh, in the different octaves for different instruments to play together. It's one whole story. It's one whole piece of music. It's one symphony, but there are layers of meaning. So not so much like a simple sentence, far more like a sheet of music. Look at where it begins in verse one. The disciples come to the temple and they say to Jesus, look at these enormous stones. It's so impressive. They're beautiful in their detail and in their size and sheer heft of themselves. And Jesus, verse two, says, let me tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Not one of these stones will be upon another. Not one will be on top of another. They will all be torn down. Jesus is saying the temple and all of Jerusalem, the center of worship and political and national pride at some future time and point are going to be destroyed. And so naturally, the disciples come back to Jesus at the beginning of the chapter and say, verse three. So Jesus, tell us when they will happen. We've told you of the beauty. You've told us they're going to be destroyed. So when? Give us, give us the executive summary of when this is going to happen. And in light of that question and Jesus's response, Jesus begins in chapter 24, this large section of teaching about the future, about the destruction of the temple and about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus uses that event in history to look even further forward to another certain and real event in history, which is his second coming which is a, a foreshadowing, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem is a foreshadowing of the, the return of Jesus. And with the return of Jesus in glory and power, there is the reality of a day of justice and judgment for the whole world. The events in history will be a foreshadowing of the events in future history when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And so at the end of the chapter, if that's the beginning, by the time if you look down now at verses 42 to verse 44, if you've got Matthew chapter 24 in your lap, at the very end of this long section of teaching about the future, Jesus says, because of the reality that this will happen, keep watch, be ready, because I'm coming back to judge the earth. And we need to pause at this point and say the return of Jesus, the second coming, as it's described, the return of God 
in the person of Jesus, but a lot of people have a great deal of problem with this concept and this reality. I mean, isn't it just over the top? Or is it simply symbolic that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead? I mean, look at the language of verse 29. Look down with me, please. Verse 29, sentence 29 says, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And verse 30, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, if you're exploring Christianity with us this morning, it's fair to say that it's a lot easier to understand the first coming of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas rather than the concept that this passage is talking about, the second coming of Jesus, his return. I mean, the Christmas passages, they're, they're soft and they're gentle, at least most of them. They describe a, a happy entrance of Jesus into the world as a baby. There's a star in the sky and there's a baby in the manger. But then you look at these verses about the return of Jesus and the contrast couldn't be greater. It's like black and white. It's like noise and silence. I mean, look, look at what is said here from these sentences. There's a lot more difficulty for the careful reader of the second coming of Jesus than the first, perhaps. I mean, listen to verse 29 again. Instead of a star in the sky, the natal star in the sky, symbolic and representing of Jesus' birth, this historic event in history. Now in sentence 29, you've got stars falling from the sky. Everything is shaking in the known world. There's an earthquake. There's the sun and the moon going dark. And, and look at verse 30. Jesus is not now as a baby in history. Jesus is now as the son of man. That's a language term from the book of Daniel that describes Jesus as a just judge. He's the son of man, verse 30, who comes with clouds and great power and glory. Jesus is coming now in majesty. Jesus is coming as himself, but to judge the world. He's not as a baby. He's not as an infant. He's not as a dependent. He's now as, he's now as a ruler. He's now as a king whose conquest over the world has happened at the cross. And now he comes to bring the justice and loving rule of God into existence. And so we can dismiss these words, can't we, as a symbolic and as a non-historic and as apocalyptic. No, we can't dismiss them. Notice the, the, uh, the context in which Jesus is speaking, verses 1 to 3. This is an event in history, a dialogue between the disciples and with Jesus. And then he uses the events of the destruction of the temple in AD 70 at the hands of Titus, the Roman general, within 37 years of the words that came from Jesus' lips in Matthew 24, the known world for every Jew was, was destroyed. The temple was brought down. The beautiful stones were brought low, not one upon the other. And even the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed and brought low. And Jesus says, just as that historical moment happened in AD 70 by Titus, so too will the historical return of Jesus Christ, speaking of himself, the Son of Man, so too will that happen. 
So these events are not pie in the sky when you die. These are not simply symbolic. These are real history in the future, just as, as we look back from our perspective, Titus, the Roman general, destroyed the temple in AD 70. Verse 30, everyone will see Jesus Christ returning, not as a babe, but they will see him returning historically and visibly and personally and physically at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming is mentioned 300 times in the New Testament. That's one in every 13 sentences when you count them all up in the New Testament mentions a historic, physical, literal return of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's the Son of Man. And so I simply want to think for the remaining time of two implications of the historic return of Jesus Christ in the future from our perspective and from the disciples' perspective. What if it really happened? Because it will really happen, says the Bible. Here's the first implication that you can see on the screen. If you really believe in a literal return of Jesus Christ at the second coming, it changes how you view society's problems. It changes how you view society's problems if you believe in the second coming of Jesus. How so? Verse 30. Verse 30 says this, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, we thought about this last term with the help of Michael Fish, who you can see on the screen. In the book of Revelation, Jesus's return in chapter one is not like a weather forecast. Jesus is not going to return like a, someone mounted atop a rocket coming through clouds in the sky. It's not about weather when it talks about clouds. It's about glory. Jesus in his return as son of man and son of God, as judge of all the earth, will bring the justice of God into a final living reality that all the eyes of the world will see, but he will also bring about with the clouds, the glory of God. That, that's the Bible language of saying the Shekinah glory, the glory of God will not just be seen in a localized presence at a specific time. It will be seen for the whole world to see. Every eye will see the glory of God when Jesus returns on the glory cloud bringing the justice of God into the whole of the world. Jesus will bring about the very glory of God and will, with it, everything that was lost because of our rebellion against God, God himself will restore. That's what will happen at the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is bringing about the glory of God and so with it, a restoration and with it, a restoration of the presence of God that we've turned our back on as our first parents in the Garden of Eden, God's glory will envelop like an envelope the entire world and he will make it anew. The whole world will be perfected. The whole world will be beautified. The whole world will be saturated like a sponge with the glory of God so that men and women, boys and girls will see God and enjoy a perfect relationship with him face to face. And then Jesus explains it with a strange image of a fig tree, verse 32. When the fig tree puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. Now, we had a glorious day in Epsom and Yule yesterday when it's the sign of spring, when only a week ago it was minus eight. I know that's not as cold as Sweden, but it's very cold for the UK. 
but fig trees that you can see on the screen, they're not evergreen. They lose their leaves in autumn and only begin to bud in spring and on into the summer. So Jesus is saying this, look at the fig tree, know your gardening year and calendar. I will bring the glory of God when I return. I will bring the ultimate spring. I will bring the ultimate summer of which every earthly spring and summer you've experienced the warmth of your entire life. Then just a dim echo of the glory that I will bring. I will bring the ultimate sunlight after centuries and centuries of winter. And I'm going to make the whole world, the whole universe perfect again. Look at the fig tree. So the second coming of Jesus shows us that God's purpose of salvation is about restoration and it's about renewal of a new heavens and a new earth. The return of Jesus as son of God and son of man is about the end of all poverty, therefore. It's about the end of injustice in every corner of the world. It's about the end of disease. So vaccination will be needed no longer. It's about the end of death. And it's about the end of hunger. When Jesus returns in glory, all of those aspects and many more will be true. So that means if you're a Christian and you long, you're waiting for, not for your vaccination, you're waiting and longing for the return of Jesus when true freedom will be known, not just societal freedom. If you love God, then you will love the thing he loves. If you love God, you'll hate the things that he hates. You'll be seeking this renewal of the world alongside him and in his power and with his strength. You will be persevering for renewal in this world, for fighting against injustice, for seeking to help those in need for alleviating all poverty and suffering and sorrow, but you will be doing it not with a, a hope that it might happen, but with a solid hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension that it one day it will all be put right. So you work hard and persevere in the face of in suffering and injustice and decay because you know that one day everything that God says will happen will happen. Let me press you on this. Look at verse 42. Verse 42 says, therefore, in light of the return of Jesus, keep watch. Verse 44 is the second thing. In light of the return of Jesus, be ready for the second coming. Jesus is addressing here the problem of spiritual sleepiness. If the second coming of Jesus is good news for people whose lives are filled with the gospel it's also good news for those whose lives are filled with bad news whose lives are filled with bad news think about it the second coming of jesus is brilliant news if you are a slave in pharaoh's egypt the second coming of jesus is great news if you're a refugee who's displaced from your home think about it if you're a woman the second coming of Jesus and the justice that he alone can bring to the whole of the cosmos is great news, especially if you live in a culture where it's acceptable for your husband to get mad and to threaten you and abuse you without any consequences. You don't yawn about the reality of the second coming if that is your daily life, do you? A person who wants justice and redemption is watching and waiting 
for the appearing of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God. But here's the thing. For the kingdom of God to return, it means that the king had to come. And it means he has to come again, not as a babe, but in power and glory. So if you are living a life of hardship and difficulty and injustice, then you long for Jesus to return. But if your life isn't too bad, if your life is not filled with bad news, if your life is pretty comfortable, say if you live in Epsom and Yule or Stonely, say if your life is not too difficult, say if you live in the UK where justice is prominent, then you live in a bubble, says history, because there are huge parts of the known world where this is not the case, where there is hardship, where there is injustice, where uh, voting systems are rigged, where vaccines might be yours way down the line, but your country is poor, so you won't get it. What about if you don't care about people like that? Jesus says, whether your life is full of suffering or not, if you're a Christian, you must care for those in need. So keep watch, verse 42, be ready, verse 44, for the kingdom of God and for the second coming. Get rid, Christian friend, of your spiritual sloth. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep on your watch. Get rid of your small thinking. If you're just concerned about yourself, thinking about parts of the world where this is not the reality, get rid of your self-absorption. That lockdown has made our worlds even smaller and long and wait for this reality to come. Because it's not just about you. The world needs for the justice of God, for the resurrection of God to be seen in its reality at the second coming of the Son of God who is the son of man. That's the first reality that if you believe in the second coming, it affects how you view the problems of the world. They become your problems too. And they will all be done away with when Jesus returns in power and in glory. But here's a second implication of which there are many. But here's the second. If you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, the son of God and son of man, it really must affect your personal integrity. It must affect your personal integrity. Look at sentence 36, verse 36 with me. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Now, thinking about the humanity and divinity of Jesus, he's fully man and fully God. That sentence is very interesting. The Bible says from that sentence, and from other places as well, that there are two things of which you can be certain about the second coming of Jesus. Here they are. First of all, it's definitely going to happen. It's a sure thing that Jesus will return just as he came the first time. But here's the second thing about the second coming of Jesus. Not only will it happen, there's absolutely no way that you can predict when it will happen. Only the Father knows when it will happen. It's a very interesting sentence. So verse 36 makes it a very powerful force for personal integrity, the reality that Jesus Christ will return. If you were, were to screw or to drill this into your heart, if you make it a central thing in your pers personal center, in your affections, 
if it wasn't just something you knew about, but it's something you believed and it impacted your everyday life, then you would never say this. I can keep doing fill in the blank. I can keep doing what I want to in private because no one will ever know what I'm doing back here. No one will ever know what I'm clicking on. No one will ever know what I'm doing in private. You will never think that if you are convinced that Jesus Christ will return because the second coming of Jesus must affect not just how you view the problems of the world, it must impact your personal integrity. How you behave in public and how you behave in private must be exactly the same. Because one day, well, you'll never know when that irresistible stream of light will enter your personal world. Jesus can return at any time. C.S. Lewis says this in one of his books. You can see a picture of him on the screen. And in one of his uh, pieces of writing in The World's Last Night, he says this. It's not on the screen, but just listen in. C.S. Lewis says, we must therefore train ourselves to ask more and more often how the thing we are saying or doing or failing to do at each moment will look when the irresistible light streams in upon it. That irresistible light that's so different from the light of this world that will reveal all things as they truly are. When Jesus returns, there will be an irresistible light and nothing unseen will remain unseen. It's a bit like when you try on a new pair of clothes. You know, if you get a pair of clothes and it comes home through the door and someone from Amazon or Primark delivers it to you and you try it on and you're trying it on in the evening. So you're trying it on under electric light. Sometimes it looks different under electric or artificial light than it does in the daytime. And maybe you want to send it back. We can see how it looks in the daytime rather than in the artificial light. Here is what C.S. Lewis is saying and what Jesus, more importantly, is saying. You need to be aware, live in conscious awareness that Jesus Christ, son of God and son of man, will return. And when he returns, everything will be exposed in this irresistible light. Everything will be seen for what it is that that good pair of jeans or that good dress that you're wearing it wearing will be seen not under artificial light but it will be seen as it truly is and that light the clear light of day the irresistible light will be something that will last forever so don't live in a way in private that you will never behave or live in in public the second coming of Jesus is not just a, a teaching from the Bible. It's not just a doctrine from the Bible that is ethereal or something you just agree to in your mind. It has a great impact or should do on your everyday living as you think about the problems in the world and as you think about how you ought to live a life of integrity and wholeness and authenticity, knowing that Jesus could return right now. He might return today. He might return tonight when you're surfing on the web. So if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for us when everything done in darkness will be exposed in God's irresistible light? Why don't we all run for the hills now? Perhaps we should. 
Well, Jesus says there's no need to run for the hills. But what you do need to do is to watch, to be aware, to long for, to live in conscious awareness that Jesus Christ will return. So how do we get ourselves ready? That's the final thing I want to think about. How do we live in a conscious awareness of the return of Jesus? What does it mean to keep watch because Jesus will return? This is what it means. Sentence 29. On that day, on judgment day, the earth will be shaken. The earth will be shaken, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 29. But that sentence about the earth being shaken only makes sense when you connect it to Matthew chapter 27, when the earth is quaked and rocks split and the sun goes dark and it was utter darkness in the middle of the day when Jesus died for the sins of the world on the cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, carrying our sin upon his shoulders, he cried out the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Would be another way of saying. But it almost sounds that Jesus is experiencing a judgment day at the end of time, but in the middle of time. And that's because he was. Jesus Christ, the son of God, was experiencing the judgment of God in history. So we don't have to experience it at the end of history. You can't tell it in the English language, but 15 times in the New Testament, in the original language, it's a language called Greek. Jesus, Jesus' coming is described as the word parousia. You see it on the screen, parousia, 15 times. It means God's presence. Jesus Christ, his presence will return. It will come again. It, it gets the idea across that when Jesus returns in power and glory at his second coming, the ultimate presence, the healing presence of God will be known throughout the world. The ultimate life of God will be known. So he will banish all death and all decay. When Jesus Christ returns, the ultimate love of God will be known throughout the world. So he'll get rid of all loneliness. The ultimate light of God will return when Jesus Christ returns. So he'll get rid of all darkness and all ignorance and all evil. But on the cross, the judgment of God that you can see on the screen and, and the love of God come together. Jesus Christ experienced not the healing presence of God on the cross, but he was devastated by the absence of God. And because he experienced the darkness, that means when he returns, we can experience the light and love and kindness of God. At his first coming, Jesus bore our sin. And he bore the judgment of God and the darkness of God. He didn't come to uh, bring judgment upon us, but he came to bear it. He came to bear it and to carry it in our place. At his first coming, Jesus gets the absence of God in our place. He gets rejection. He gets, he gets death itself. He gets all of that in the darkness of God so that we might experience his presence and his light and his love and his acceptance and his assurance when he returns to rescue us so that we can receive his light and his love. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Here's the truth of the gospel. The reality is that the judge of the whole world, Jesus Christ, was willing to be judged for us. So when you become a Christian, 
you see, you see something like Revelation 5. Revelation 5 is when the center of the universe is the throne of God, but on the throne is the judge who was judged. You see a lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, that we'll meditate upon as we journey towards Easter. Jesus Christ, the just one, was judged on our behalf. He laid down his life as a lamb, a sacrificial offering, bearing the sin of God upon his shoulders and to such a degree it even cost him his own life. He was sacrificed in our place so that we might know the light and love and acceptance of God. What it means to become a Christian is this. My judge, you, you sense and you feel that Jesus Christ is my judge and he was willing to come and to take the judgment of God for me. And you're so moved by that at the first time and on through every time you think about it. That you ask for the forgiveness of God and you realize and sense and feel the acceptance of God because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. You realize it's not your own merits or effort that Jesus accepts for your forgiveness, but it's his very own offering that accepts you and makes you right and acceptable before a holy and just God. If the next time you sense and experience Jesus in your life, you say that for the first time, that means that you will stand before him glorious and complete when he returns the second time. If you believe in the second coming of Jesus, this is the reality. It means many things, but it at least means this. It will give you a passion for justice in your locality and to the ends of the earth. It will give you a real concern to have a life of integrity and wholeness in your private life. So there's no difference between private and public persona. And it will give the ability to forgive other people, those that have wronged you. And you can do it with endless hope. And so Jesus calls us to watch and to pray for the second coming.